Welcome to Room for Growth, a Willow Tree podcast about growth marketing hosted by Billy Lowen and me, Billy Fisher. Whether you're an industry expert or just getting started, there's plenty of room to grow. Share this episode with your favorite coworker, follow us wherever you enjoy podcasts, and reach out if you'd like to join the show. You ready, Billy? I'm ready, Billy. Let's go. Let's f***ing grow. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Room for Growth. Excited about a conversation that we have coming up on this episode with Phil Michelson. And Phil is the CEO of Live Auctioneers. If you haven't checked out the Live Auctioneers app or site, you're probably going to want to do that after listening to this episode and our discussion with Phil. Billy's going to be joining me for that discussion. And before we moved to that, that interview, as we were going through our discussion with Phil, it started to make me think a, a, about a couple of things that I'm observing. And there were some recent reports. You know, we just closed up Q2 of 2022. And some of the, the stats are coming out. And there's some really interesting, maybe concerning or confusing, maybe even, uh, results that are coming out of that. And there are a few that certainly impact what we work on with our clients, and, and I'm sure many of you, the decisions that you're making for your brand. If we go backwards in time, March, April of 2020, we all know what happened, you know, the pandemic lockdowns, there was this just surge in e-commerce out of pure necessity. And when I say e-commerce, I'm kind of using it broadly in this sense, you know, shirts or retail, our traditional uh, places that we shop food delivery. So let's lump that all. And because everything was closed, the only way that we could engage with these brands was digitally. And we saw it with our clients and it was just, it was obvious everywhere where brands were that had not previously had much of a, a presence in that, that way were, were spinning up new experiences as fast as they could. And, and the data shows this just massive spike. And the big question that a year later, so uh, a year a year ago, in, in the summer of 2021, there were a lot of questions being asked. I was hearing it from clients. Is there's kind of three potential scenarios here? This is is this the new normal where consumers that have never tried these services before are all of a sudden on? You know, I, I use the example my mom, who sometimes can hardly figure out how to text. Sorry, mom. She all of a sudden was ordering DoorDash and she, she started to, to really enjoy that experience because a lot of the dining rooms were closed and she couldn't go, go dine in. So she was ordering DoorDash. So there's this flood of new consumers. So is that the new normal? Are these consumers, once we get back to a post-pandemic world, are they going to continue at this same incredible rate? Or is this just an acceleration where, you know, it was growing, e-commerce was growing at 10% year over year, but then all of a sudden the pandemic just accelerated everything 10 years forward. I, I, I continued to hear the analogy of um, we evolved 10 years and three months from a digital standpoint. So is this just a, an acceleration? That's kind of, you know, in that new normal area. The other is, is a mean reversal, which is kind of like the bummer of a thing to talk about. But um, we started to get a glimpse of, of some of this recently where in most parts of the country, we're at some level of post-pandemic behavior um, in terms of consumer behavior. You know, when you look at travel, travel this summer has been back to post-pandemic uh, numbers. So people are, are certainly continuing to travel. And a lot of the dining rooms are open, malls are open, those, those sorts of things. And there's some really interesting data that just came out uh, from Q2 that, that's making me scratch my head a little bit. And I'm curious what our listeners are thinking and how you might be making decisions based on this, which shows a mean reversal. And so Benedict Evans, there's some data that's all over the place. If you, if you never have checked out Benedict Evans, he, I really like um, the way that he walks through some of these, the, the data, uh, particularly in the retail space. But Q2 showed a spike back down to the trend line. And so I'm, I'm looking at that, I'm wondering, okay, does this mean that consumers are um, just back to, you know, what they were doing before the pandemic? Or, you know, it's hard to look at this data and not and ignore the fact that there's a ton of uncertainty. Uh, we have the war in Ukraine, which is uh, causing all sorts of challenges and, and uncomfortable kind of feelings in terms of uh, consumer sentiment. We have inflation and the talks of a recession, layoffs, those sorts of things that are causing all of this turmoil. 
And so it's really hard to evaluate certainly one quarter of data and say, okay, well, we're back to the pre-pandemic way. Let's just go with that. And so I'm I'm really curious and something that I'm going to continue to ask our guests of how they're thinking about that. And certainly, well, when we post this episode, would love to uh, hear from from you all in terms of your thoughts and and what you're thinking about this. But as I look at some of this data, there's a couple like core reminders that that I think of. So there's certain behaviors that we engaged on during the pandemic that were just purely out of necessity. One example I like to use is food delivery, and I was paying an irrational amount during the the pandemic days for food that wasn't that good when it arrived, you know, the like French fries as an example. Well, I think now that dining rooms are are open, it's a much better experience to go indulge in your fries fresh out of the fryer at the restaurant you're sitting at rather than having it delivered and paying some almost irrational level of dollars to to have this kind of below average food delivered to you. But in the pandemic, we're stuck at home. Those are things you just kind of like look over. And so value and customer experience, I think, still wins in Trump's here. And what brands were able to get away with during that pandemic is they were throwing up kind of below average experiences. And again, because consumers had no other choice, they just went with it. And another example that I like to use is the return experience of an e-commerce experience. So um, why would you prefer to go to a store and um, or a mall and shop on site? It's a brand you don't know very well. You're not really sure how it's going to fit. You want to try it on. And if a brand has a terrible return experience, one of my favorite brands in the world, Viore, has one of the worst return experiences I've ever engaged with, where there's really no exchange process. I have to pay for shipping. So it's like, wow, I I might as well just go to a store that carries that product, try it on and make sure that it's going to fit rather than, than going through this experience. But on the other hand, I've experienced brands that have something like happy returns where I don't even have to box up the thing. I can just take it to a retail location, hand it to them. And at that point, my exchange is already processed. And so I think value continues to trump all of the stats. And I just encourage all of our listeners to continue to over critique the features and the the experience that you're delivering to your consumers. Make sure you're delivering it in, in a way that actually improves the experience and isn't just like, well, this is consumers will engage in this because they have no choice. Those days are gone and and we've lost that opportunity. And so for our clients, I'm kind of watching these stats, not really reacting to them, but really staying focused on the end goal of deliver a great experience digitally or maybe even use digital to support the in-store experience, the brick and mortar experience, because that's not going away by any means. And we'll certainly continue to watch these numbers. And, and at some point, if this, if this mean reversal trend continues, it's going to impact the way we make some budgeting decisions and, and feature decisions. But for now, it, uh, it's something I'm watching. Curious what you're thinking about that. Would love to, love to hear from you. But this, uh, the reason I bring this up is our discussion with Phil, I think, highlights this experience topic. Live auctioneers is an incredible idea that re- not, doesn't replace but supports the estate planning or estate sale auction world. It replaces that experience with a digital experience and really enhances it. So in a previous world where you'd have to drive all over the place, wait in a long line, now you can buy really unique goods, bid on you really unique goods through a really cool digital experience. And Phil will tell us a little bit about how they're continuing to optimize and, and improve that experience over time. And this is an example that pandemic or not is something that just makes the lives easier of the consumer that's, that's in the market for something they might find at an auction. So later on in the segment, Billy's going to be joining me for our discussion with Phil Michelson, the CEO of Live Auctioneers. All right, Phil, welcome to the podcast, Room for Growth, uh, pumped up. In our last podcast, uh, Margot mentioned some of her uh, affinity for live auctioneers and boom, we've got you on the podcast. So, so excited to have you here and, and learn about, learn a lot more about live auctioneers. But before we get there, just want to give all of our guests an opportunity to introduce themselves and, uh, Tell a little bit about the journey of, of how you got to where you are today. So uh, thanks, Phil. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? 
Sure, Billy and Billy, uh, happy to be here. Um, thank you, Margot, for the mention of live auctioneers and uh, giving me this opportunity. So I'm Phil Michelson, CEO of Live Auctioneers. We help auction houses around the world to sell online and to find buyers. And then for buyers, we're really helping people uh, find either great deals on things or incredibly rare and exciting one-of-a-kind items. And we kind of deliver up both and um, have two different types of buyers who both have a lot of fun browsing all the items available for sale on, on liveauctioneers.com and our, our mobile app. My background, I've been in kind of technology for about 20 years now, uh, worked in all different areas, and, and perhaps we'll dive into that a bit more. Um, but I've been at uh, startups, I've been at IBM, like a really large public company. Um, so I enjoy the size company of Live Auctioneers, about 100 employees, working with uh, over 1,000 partners, delighting millions of people uh, who come by our website every month. How did you even get started in this business? How did live auctioneers come to exist? What is the origin story? Sure. So the original version of live auctioneers focused on helping sellers list their merchandise for online sale. And actually, it was via eBay. eBay had a part of their auction website that was focused on live auctions. And so from around 2002 to 2008, that was what live auctioneers was doing. Around 2008, eBay decided it wanted to get out of the live auction business. I think they really were setting their sights uh, even back then on starting to compete more with Amazon and fixed price model. And so they wanted to get out of this business that would, would never be a fixed price model. So the opportunity was given to live auctioneers to start the two-sided marketplace. And so from about 2008 to 2014, I'd say it was a very seller-focused marketplace. Whatever the sellers wanted, that's what the, the business did. Um, I joined in 2014, and I think that's when we said, hey, there's this huge opportunity to bring new buyers into the auction world. What can we do that might initially uh, upset auction houses or not, but overall bring a lot more buyers into this uh, experience? And so from around 2014 to now, we really just continuously innovated on what brings more buyers. And the auction houses come in, they're like, Phil, I, I love seeing new buyers. Um, it's invigorating. It grows my sales. Um, so they're very happy with the new buyers. And at times, we just have to coach them through what's what's best or, or listen and innovate and do it, you know, things in a way that works for um, these small business owners uh, while also working for buyers. Awesome. So uh, for folks who have never uh, heard of live auctioneers or, or even used it, can you tell us a little bit more about the experience, what it's like? It sounds almost overwhelming and, and really cool, uh, kind of an online representation of something that's been around a long time in auction. The oldest auction houses have been around for hundreds of years. Um, Christie's and Sotheby's regularly compete to see who was founded first, and they've traced their lineage back to the 1700s. So it's a very old profession, and we are providing a really modern layer on top of it. And there are thousands of arts and antiques auction houses out there. And so from the convenience of your home or from the beach, uh, where we have had one bidder who was bidding from a boat, he somehow had internet connection, um, you can now browse uh, what's going on in all these different venues around the world. You can see all the different uh, merchandise that they have found to put up for auction. These auction house owners, they range um, in uh, age from kind of their, some are in their 30s, uh, some are in their 70s. Um, it's a really interesting assortment of folks, and they are basically the curators. They're deciding what is worth being photographed and described in detail, what's worth moving to their auction house facility. They're putting their name against it as the authenticator. They often have specialists on their teams. Um, they'll have someone who's a GIA certified gemologist. They'll have someone on their team who really knows Asian antiques really well. Um, they'll have someone else who knows uh, U.S. illustration and comic art from the like, mid-20th century. So they have these specialists on their team who know different areas. These auction owners have a great eye for picking out what might be worth value. They move it to their facility, get it photographed, described it online. And then you, from the convenience of your home, can browse. And sometimes you might just fall in love with some piece you never knew that you thought you wanted, a vintage like, horse-themed weather vane, but they can be really cool. Or you might have not known you wanted a Michael Jordan basketball card, or you wanted a guitar signed by Kurt Cobain. Uh, we've got all sorts of Artwork, jewelry, fashion, vintage cars, um, uh, with train memorabilia, but it's both like parts of real trains or it's vintage little toy train sets. The most popular search term is oil for oil paintings, but also for oil memorabilia, like from old gas stations. So it's a really wide array of super interesting stuff, uh, very different from uh, IKEA. Super interesting. Yeah, I have a million questions. I want to dig into your search volume data now, but 
Phil, before we do, consumer interest in estate sales has changed tremendously over the last couple of years. First of all, COVID, obviously forcing people into their homes, I'm sure brought some interest your way. But second, there's this pesky Gen Z that just will sometimes decide to come and disrupt um, the traditional audience that you would think about, kind of the older retirees who have dominated this market. How do you think about engaging your user base when it's so subject to change? How have you pivoted to some of these changes? Yeah, it's been interesting to see the user base evolve over time. Um, and I think that um, as a business owner, uh, one of the best things is being diversified. And so all of these different categories of merchandise uh, expose us to all sorts of different trends. And so when Friends was getting popular among kind of Gen Z, suddenly vintage magazines from I think it was the late 90s and early 2000s with Jennifer Aniston on the cover became like popular. And so it's been interesting to have already been having those magazines selling for a dollar each and then suddenly the price like skyrockets to $75 each. And it's just because something caught on with a certain demographic. So just by being in business with access to so much different merchandise, we're able to ride all sorts of different trends. And then we try to be on the cutting edge of technology, making things uh, easily shareable, being first to market in different areas. So we were first to market um, to help auction houses have mobile apps. And we think that the mobile shopping experience is one that certain generations prefer. And so that just kind of put us in position for that or making sure the images could be pinnable, we thought would be a useful thing, uh, you know, five, 10 years ago. So we try to play around um, with making our stuff more shareable on the right platforms. Seen some hilarious TikToks. There was one that was um, Obj that got away. This guy was going through all the items that he lost on live auctioneers <laughs> um, with kind of like some sob sounds and sad music. It was really funny. There's different ways in which creators make our content come to life. And we try to make it a little bit easier where we can and then lean in where we can to uh, whether it's work through influ with influencers on Instagram and TikTok or other ways to get our, our story out. So with that, I was, you kind of went there where I was going to ask some questions about TikTok. So, so like the friends, uh, fad and, you know, um, I, I had heard that the nineties was all of a sudden cool again, you know, all the, all the kind of nineties genre stuff. Do you guys participate in that or you kind of let it happen on TikTok and then let it naturally organically evolve on your experience or how much lean in versus just letting user generated stuff start happening is, is going on? Yeah, I mean, I think to date, our approach has been to try to add a little bit of fire to what's already kind of kindling. Um, so if we see that interior designers are doing kind of flea market flips with stuff on live auctioneers and there, I will like, I'll plug it. There's amazing deals on furniture on live auctioneers, um, all around the U S uh, particularly in the Virginia area where I know Adam is, um, he's listening. So, uh, we'll see something going on and we'll try to lean on in a little bit, find some influencers in that space who can better tell the story, better demystify the experience and make it more accessible. The purchase experience right now at auction is still a little bit cumbersome. So having someone to guide you through the experience is helpful. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about how can we make the experience more accessible. It's such an interesting concept. It actually hurts my heart a little bit as a person who likes strong control over everything I do. But the notion of a treasure hunt as your value proposition, we work with a few brands where this is sort of core to the experience, like TJ Maxx being one where when they thought about their digital experience, they almost don't want the digital experience to take away from getting foot traffic in the door to experience this notion of go and find a treasure-like item. How do you find a sense of control when really it's the chaos that's driving what's core to the experience here? Yeah, the um, challenge that we have, which maybe TJ Maxx has to a lesser extent and Amazon probably doesn't have at all, is every object is one of a kind. So a lot of typical e-commerce strategies for how you would guide users to the right product just don't work. So, you know, on Amazon, it's like people who bought this also bought that. And they can sell the same item over and over again and see what pairs with it. We really can't do that. <laughs> um, we, our objects are so different um, from day to day in terms of their condition and their age and what it is and what they do. We try to do a lot of data processing in the back end to try to figure out the attributes of the items, um, but it's really hard. So we do rely on our users to do a little bit of work. 
we will try to capture preferences, understand, oh, this person's browsing coins. Let's try to show them more coins. The coins are at this price point. Let's try to make sure they're at that price point. Oh, they're ancient Greek coins that they're into. Let's try to show them more ancient Greek. So we're like, try to figure things out. We can, but maybe they just really only like the bust of a certain Greek ruler and not of a different ruler. And like, that was the thing they wanted. So we do try to capture explicit preferences where we can. The more we can get someone to tell us that they really want an Ames chair uh, from 1950 that's black, like the better, the more they can tell us exactly what type of uh, size jewelry they wear because they're looking to buy for themselves, uh, the better. And then we can alert them um, more regularly to when we have the right merchandise for them. It's a partnership. I think yeah, IKEA is a really interesting brand for me to follow because I feel like their merchandise is very mass manufactured. And so like nothing that you get is one of a kind. And so that's live auction is totally different. Everything you get will have its own story. But like Ikea, you kind of have to do a little bit of work right now to work with live auctioneers. Um, just like you have to assemble your furniture when you get home, and maybe that gives you a, a sad story, but also some pride, depending on you know, how you feel about something like your furniture. With live auctioneers, like, you have to do a little work to find the right thing, but then you get an even better story for it and a great deal, too. Wow. Phil, so speaking of Ikea, who, who on earth do you compete with? I've heard you talk about some of the auction houses as partners. I'm trying to figure out, you know, who, who do you view as a competitor? I view the competitor as basically someone who doesn't know how amazing auctions are. And so it's more of like an information asymmetry that I'm competing against and just trying to get the story out there. Um, but figuring out how to do it cost effectively as, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be very honest. Like if you want to buy a gift for someone with live auctioneers, you have to plan ahead. They, like live auctions makes amazing gifts because you can get someone totally unique bookends made out of like iron from wherever, like, or you can find someone a, like a one of a kind vintage book from like a, the first edition of some topic, great costume jewelry. There's all sorts of great gifts, but you might lose at auction and <laughs> then you don't have the gift because it was one of a kind. Uh, you're going to have to coordinate shipping a little bit more than normal. So it's going to take a week or two to get to you. And so that makes it means it's harder for us to buy Google AdWords and go up against Etsy because they can really service a broader set of use cases um, and be a little bit more cost-effective with their spend. So I think for us, it's, we try a lot to think about how do we get our story out kind of cost-effectively. Maybe this podcast will help. Thank you. And um, over time, we're thinking a lot about how do we just make the experience easier so that maybe someday we're able to satisfy the gift buyer who needs something the next day and give them the confidence that they can quickly find those, uh, those bookends, that cost of jewelry, and win the item and get it shipped right away. So a lot of our technology investments are going into making that purchase experience easier. Super interesting conversation around how you drive adoption to your brand. And it sounds so different from acquisition all the way through to how you might think about retention of your fan base, your customer base. But at the same time, you're also a digital only business is my understanding. Like if the storefront of your app didn't exist. The business proposition in itself also wouldn't exist. So you're kind of held to the same UX changes, experimentation, and understanding of data as the Ubers of the world, or to your point, the Pinterest of the world. What do you really focus on to understand whether or not new customers are adopting your brand and adopting your product? Sure. So definitely... There being great e-commerce experiences out there at the Amazons and Etsy's and Wayfair's and, and whomever else has really raised the bar for what I think people are willing to tolerate. And they also provide us with some great ideas. But at the same time, we're um, really helping these small business owners uh, who didn't expect to be online sellers become good online sellers. Uh, the great news is that their merchandise is so differentiated. It's unlike anything you can get anywhere else. So that's awesome. At the same time, we are trying to get buyers who are used to a certain type of e-commerce experience willing to work with these kind of small sellers who might not be... like Some of our sellers today are still not comfortable taking credit cards. It's like, <laughs> let alone like, like um, taking an online credit card from someone they've never seen before in person. Some of them get a lot of like confidence from getting cash you know, like handed to them, even let alone checks. And so we are really trying to help these small business owners become better online sellers. Uh, so we give them lots of advice and coaching. We try to give them lots of tools. So we're doing things like guaranteeing a credit card payment if they're willing to take a credit card, just to get them over that hurdle to make the experience easier and then allow us to make the e-commerce website feel a little bit more standard. 
I think, um, and this is relative to our competition, like it gets easier each year to build things with technology. More partners pop up to help you. And again, a perfect example is like Amazon Web Services. Um, we used to have to have our own dedicated, ho- and used to have to buy your own server. And now you can use the cloud. You used to have to reserve as exactly as many servers as you needed for the month. Now you can flexibly go up and down depending on your needs. And our business spikes on Saturdays. So it's great to be able to flex up our hosting needs on Saturdays and flex down by Sunday. And so it gets a little bit easier to build things each year. And then we try to leverage that and build on top of it to make more and more features available to buyers uh, and to sellers to grease the wheels of this experience and help the sellers sell their goods at higher prices, which then does well for them, but also for their consigners that they're helping out. So there's really a lot of opportunity for win-win-win in this market too as we make the tech investments. That's interesting. I really, you're reshaping how my brain is thinking about your business because I thought about you all as like a direct-to-consumer business where you would really care about the end buyer, how to get them back, how to keep them shopping. But you sound much more B2B where you're really focused on how do you make the seller's experience a really good one? How do you empower them to put their product in market and reach their customers? That's an interesting shift. Yeah, that's my favorite part about um, this business. I'd say that I'm in the marketplace business. And what that means is I really am thinking about, on the one hand, what am I doing to help the sellers and make them better sellers and sell more? And then the other hand, what am I doing to bring more buyers and make the experience good for them? And there's often these like fascinating second-order effects where if we make something easier for the buyer, it might like upset the seller. <laughs> and you know, I think one thing we did was introduce ratings and reviews. And our sellers were very much against it at the beginning. They were like, why should anyone out there have the right to say what they want about my business? Um, it's going to be terrible for me. And then it, we actually um, decided to partner with ourselves. Like, you know, we're going to collect the ratings and reviews, and we're not going to show them to anyone but you. And you can see what people are, sell- are saying about your business. And we started collecting, and it turned out most people were saying great things about their business. Um, they had no reason to be afraid. And then the times when they were getting bad feedback, they're like, oh, wow, I didn't know my, my team was doing that. Um, these auction houses can have 20 to 100 employees. And so sometimes they weren't monitoring exactly what was going on. And so they were getting some useful feedback. And then when we turned the ratings and reviews live, I think we, it gave um, us the ability to market to more buyers who now didn't have as much concern about uh, authenticity or, or trust or other related issues. And so it like things that seem like, of course, you would do this to help the buyers. Uh, sometimes the sellers will push back on similar to yeah, payment processing via credit card. Uh, we really have to think a lot about how do we make the sellers happy to accept payment via credit card um, so that we can get them to release the objects to our online buyers. So Phil, quick question. You have done a great job of taking this in-person experience that's fast and furious. It's sometimes hard to understand what an auctioneer is even saying. It can be kind of overwhelming and translating that into a digital experience that's fairly equivalent. What was the technology that you had to have underlying that digital experience to make it translate so well? Um, What were some of the keys to success that you tried to develop along the way? Sure. I think it's really a team effort to help innovate new experiences. And so I think in my career, I I pride myself on assembling uh, really great product teams that are often a combination of a UX researcher um, who can do some visual design, a product manager who can really do some customer research, some technology folks who can really communicate well about what the technology can and can't do with a limited amount of investment, and then try to come up with something great. And so in trying to bring the excitement and speed of a live auction to the digital experience, um, we've spent time really studying like what are the auctioneers doing, um, what are the bidders doing, and then what is the most important information to, to surface? And then what can we realistically do with technology on web and mobile to make sure that we can provide the ability for buyers to interact in a super fast experience time? And so I, I really take a lot of pride in getting some accolades from the founder of uh, Ruby on Rails and Basecamp. He wrote a blog post about the UX of the live auctioneers live bidding console. And he, in some ways, was very harsh. But in other ways, he was like, but this thing actually really works for a super complex experience that has to work in real time. It's like the the number at which the price is selling for is big and you can see it. And there's a big button to click when you want to bid. And you'd only have to look in one small area to get your bid across. Um, And some of those things are really important when stuff is moving fast. So it's a really strange user experience to try to design for. Because yeah, these callers can move so fast when they're calling out the current bid. And these auction events will have 500 items 
that the auctioneer is trying to sell over the course of about five to six hours. Each item he really only wants to spend like 30 to 45 seconds on, but she wants to get the highest price for the item. So it's um, moving super fast. And yeah, we, we definitely try to watch what buyers and sellers are doing. We take feedback. We've had to add things like uh, lock and unlock the bid button just so you don't accidentally click it. Um, we've had you know buyers claim, oh, my cat stepped on the app and that's why I bid. And we're like, no, we think you're just having buyer's remorse. <laughs> so we've got some features to control for that. But at the same time, you know, we've actually, we think that swipe to bid is kind of not fast enough for people who really want to bid quickly on items. So it's been really interesting to play with different interactions um, to get the bidding going. Our auctioneers actually love our technology. They say it's the fastest, um, and that matters to them because they want to see all the bids coming in from bidders around the world quickly and not have closed the lot and then have a bid come in because that creates all sorts of issues. Um, And we've done things like send our team to China to make sure that the app is loading fast there on the other side of the Great Firewall. Like We take a lot of pride in making sure it's a low latency experience technically. For the video and the bids, um, but then also a high usability experience. And it's really been a team effort um, to get that experience there. So Phil, the, earlier you mentioned oil is, I think, I think you said your, your top search term. How do, so I can only imagine um, the amount of data and insights that you get from what users are searching. It's, it's, I'm sure it's fascinating. How are you leveraging that data? How are you kind of taking it in and, and how's it impact some of the things that you do in the experience or does it Im- impact some of the things you do in the experience? Yeah, absolutely. One of the neatest things um, that we provide to folks is what we call our price results database. So it has the prices at which 25 million objects have sold at auction over the last uh, about 15 years. And it's an amazing resource. Um, I will pull it up when I'm at a tag sale or a state sale and be like, is this um, Matchbox car worth anything? And I can quickly find out. Or what are these, uh, this Tiffany kind of candelabra sell for? Um, and so the data is really powerful. It's really useful. We try to make it available as much as we can to people, like through that price results database. And then we try a lot to structure the data to make it useful so that we can start to look at trends in different areas. We use it to try to create profiles of folks that we can notify them when the right objects come up for sale. Again, a really unique aspect of our business is that what we have available for sale today is totally different from what we'll have available in four weeks. Auction houses will secure inventory, photograph it, catalog it, and they'll put it up on our website for about two weeks before the sale ends, and then that thing's gone. You can never get it again. So that means we do have a ton of data coming through. And we have to try to figure out that, oh, okay, this Rolex watch with the blue face in the Daytona style with some diamonds uh, in this size is actually really matching this other one over here, even though they're described slightly differently with different photographs so that we can get to the person who actually just lost her and maybe wants it now a little bit more. Uh, so we've got tons of data. We're still looking at doing more and more. Um, yeah, if anyone's listening who loves crunching data, feel free to reach out to uh, Phil at Live Auctioneers. Um, we think we can publish a lot of neat trend reports and other things. And uh, I think we're just scratching the surface of what we can do with all the data. Yeah, it brings me to something that I think is unique in your business. So Phil, I have a confession. I am a nerd for push notifications among all other owned channel experiences and how you can use things like push notifications or SMS to create tension or create friction or create this really unique user experience, particularly when you have an engaged audience like you do. I know that right now, one of the ways that you're using push in particular is say I search for a Chanel handbag and there isn't one available. I can sort of follow that search and potentially get an update if the item I'm looking for becomes available. But how are you thinking about using own channel as a part of your product experience, a part of the value proposition that you're creating? Yeah, so I am strategically um, really fascinated by owned channels. Um, I think it's very risky to depend on others and things you might think you own, like email. Google can and, and Yahoo and whoever can decide suddenly that they want to put some ads above your email uh, or they want to put you on the promotions tab, and then you've lost a lot of your direct relationship with your customer. So we've tried to play around with getting more access to folks, um, even just as like a defensive mechanism because we do use email a lot 
But like, what if Google and, and Yahoo and Outlook decide to suppress the emails more? Um, I want to have access to people's text messages. I want to have access to mobile notifs, uh, browser notifs. Like, we'll try other things. Um, so I think it's really important to be diversifying your channels kind of just in case um, some of these companies start to come for them. And then in terms of how we use them, um, yeah, we're constantly innovating. I think with live auctioneers, um, I, there's a lot of different frameworks or metaphors to use for the business. Two-sided marketplace is one. I also think we're an events business. So we have these auction events that come up for a limited time. It's almost like you can get tickets. And so we definitely think about notifs as if like there, there is a time sensitivity to a lot of what's going on. The objects are one of a kind. Um, only one person can bid that amount on the object. So if you want to be the one to win it at $100, you got to come fast and place your bid. So there are some neat ways we can use urgency. And I think notifs and, and urgency make a lot of sense together. And I'll give my, my wife some credit. She um, led uh, CRM Marketing for Betterment, the online investment manager, uh, for a number of years. And one concept she innovated there was something um, of a fortune cookie notif. And it was like just sending something to your customer that makes them laugh or feel kind of good. And so I think she developed a list of all these jokes that they could that were kind of positive and uplifting and giving you credit for your savings. And so when you put a deposit in or when you hit a new milestone, you'd get this just like random positive notification. Um, and people started sharing them on social. Uh, it was a, a nice little viral marketing thing. And we, uh, I think we've just started with some fun messages for when you win an item at Live Auctioneers. Um, but I think there's all sorts of fun ways we can start communicating, um, even when you lose or <laughs> other events that are just um, kind of a little, little silly uh, where we can bring some light to it in social and viral. That's so cool. I, it, as you're talking, well, one of my favorite app experiences that I've recently got into is it has some similarities and it's Nike's sneakers app where, you know, you, you have this chance at buying, you know, the newest Jordans or, or, you know, some Travis Scott special that they have special shoe. These are, things are going for $150 and then sell on the mark aftermarkets for $500. But what Nike does so well in that experience is when, when you win and I've won like one time out of 30 attempts, they, almost supply you with the things that you, the assets you can use on social media to go say and, and brag, like I got them. I landed that, that app, that those pair of shoes. Do you guys do anything like that? So when, when I win that Rolex watch on live auctioneers, do you guys do anything where, um, where users then can kind of go brag out to their network that they were able to land it? Yeah, I think we, we've just started with some like fun uh, notifs that kind of that's almost like a party like uh, award thing going off um, when you want it. Um, it. But there's like so much more opportunity. Yeah, for a little while we did a um, thing where I think it was when you lost, we showed you just a few letters of the username of the person you were outbid by, and it was actually fascinating that because uh, we're like maybe if we personalize this experience, people are like really want to come back a little bit more to try to outbid that other person. And then we actually started getting some complaints. People were like, oh, I always get outbid by this same person. Um, and so we still need to play with it more. But I think, yeah, another metaphor I'll use is like, we're kind of a, a video game where like there are competitors who you're losing to. And so we can do things like battle mode. We could do things like um, having a lot more chat during the games, uh, during the auction events themselves. Um, there's lots of ways we can play with it. It's a fun industry to work in and, and think about and um, be innovating and productive for years to come. For sure. I mean, come on. So there's got to be some cool, like you mentioned the the guy bidding on his boat. There's got to be some cool stuff that's sold. Like what's the craziest thing or item that, that comes to mind that's sold on live auctioneers? I mean, there are like wild things. I'm like, wow, like people buy gazebos or like people buy like a knight in shining armor. Like I just like, I, I didn't really think about how those things exist and end up somewhere, whether it's a museum or a lawn. Um, so like those things are wild. But then I'll just say like modern art. I was just like, wow, like that painting, which looks like it was just shot with a gun is actually like a $200,000 painting. I, I, I didn't know just shooting a canvas is art. Um, so the art never ceases to amaze. Uh, and then, yeah, our broad category of collectibles, which includes uh, all sorts of things. Um, we had David Hasselhoff doing an auction um, and it was super fun. Like one of our guys got to fly out there and spend some time with the Hoff and the Hoff showed up for the video event of the auction. Um, and he had like props from the SpongeBob SquarePants movie he did, where it was like an eight foot tall Hasselhoff uh, made out of paper mache being auctioned off. And like, 
wanted that. Uh, so there's, uh, yeah, lots of lots of fun stuff. Do you remember how much that went for? I'm, I'm curious. What's what's the market like for one of those? <laughs> yeah, we sold a, a Night Rider kit car as part of that sale too, um, and I can't remember, it was like a couple hundred thousand dollars. Wow, unbelievable! Did some research on you and your background. And um, remember that you founded a were the founder of a business, keeprecipes.com. And so I'm starting to see a trend here. Is this is this like a passion that you have, like nostalgia and and kind of uh, historical items that that need to be passed on? Is this is this a, a passion or a secret hidden thing that you that you're into? Wow, you went deep in the research and you've asked a very interesting <laughs> question. Um, you know, I think one thing that I am passionate about is um, kind of empowering curators. So I think there are people who are just great at finding cool stuff and like sharing it with the world. And I, one, one of the things I love about my job is I just come across people who are passionate about like the most random things. Um, it's like they really know inexpensive Japanese artwork. And they'll tell me stories about why the pieces were sold as a triptych in three parts. It was so that someone could buy one piece at a time over multiple like years um, as they saved up more money to buy then the whole piece of art. And so the stories I get from individuals uh, who know a lot about an area and love that area, I think are really fascinating. And so that business keep recipes was the outgrowth of something I was working on in 2008 that was a lot like Pinterest before Pinterest launched. People could create visual collections of what they were into or passionate about whether it was what's the best um, SLR camera or the best restaurants in uh, New York. And um, they could then share that collection with friends. And it could be a collection of vegan recipes. And then how that led to live auctioneers is that the main use cases for what I built were not at all what I expected. I thought people were going to save books from the New York Times and I could send them deals at Amazon to buy them and then I'd get a commission. Um, I thought people would save restaurants and use it on the go. And instead, people kept saving recipes, wedding design inspiration, and furniture design inspiration. So I uh, doubled down on the recipe thing, actually, and that business runs and it's profitable. And I leveraged my experience um, helping in the furniture area to get a job at First Dibs. Um, so my startup was helping interior designers collaborate with their clients. The designer would clip photos of inspiring interiors and then clip objects available for sale at Restoration Hardware and at firstdibs.com and share them with their client. And they would have a chat about it. And so when I was looking for a better paying job than my startup, uh, First Dibs had just raised a large round of funding and I was able to join them as a product manager. And the story of First Dibs is that it helps antique dealers sell online. So that's uh, has some similarities to live auctioneers. Um, actually, a lot of the antique dealers uh, on First Dibs, they buy their goods on live auctioneers. They're really savvy shoppers. And so if you kind of want to cut in front of the antique dealer and buy stuff, <laughs> live auctioneers is a good spot for you. Did you just basically tell us that you invented Pinterest before Pinterest existed? Yes. Because that sure sounds like Pinterest. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say like curation of <laughs> wedding and, and uh, home decor sounds strikingly like Pinterest to me. I give them all the credit for um, fundraising uh, and for creating an amazing user experience and for thinking to launch um, with uh, blogs and the design community. So they did a lot of neat things early on. But uh, yeah, I was working on something similar before uh, they launched their version of Pinterest. They actually started with this thing called Hello Tote. It was a mobile shopping app, which had nothing to do with clipping. Uh, so that's what they were working on when I started my thing. Um, but they pivoted and, and came up with a great user experience and great launching community. So I have a bit of a selfish question. want to go kind of niche audience for a second, but I get a question like this a lot. And I'm curious what your take is, especially as a serial entrepreneur. So you probably wouldn't say this about yourself, but I'll say it. You went to Princeton and Harvard School of Business. There are sort of these constant debates today about whether an MBA carries any merit if it has its price tag is sort of worth the impact that you receive in education. What should someone consider when they're deciding if they should get an MBA? Should they invest in that learning experience? Will it be worth it? And then also which school to go to? There's a very real difference in sort of brand weight and quality. How, how do you talk potential future MBA students through the decision of whether to go or not go? I will start by saying I think being an entrepreneur was one of the best things for helping me learn about business. When you're starting your own thing, you have to learn so much about sales. You're selling your first employees, you're selling your investors, and you're selling to customers. 
Um, so you learn a ton about sales. Uh, you don't have every job filled, so you kind of have to learn a bit about marketing. You might have to learn a bit about technology. So you really get a general understanding of the business. You have to report your financials. So you have to learn a little bit about finance. You have to do some compliance work. So you learn a bit about taxes. So being an entrepreneur is an incredible business experience. And I love hiring entrepreneurs. Um, I think they make uh, great uh, employees who know how to cut through kind of red tape or get stuff done. And they're very outcome oriented. So I think being an entrepreneur is an amazing way to learn a lot about business. And then I think business school is a great way to learn a lot about business. I think it depends what types of work experiences you've had, whether it adds a ton of value. If you've already been in private equity for years, I don't know um, if it adds that much value. If you've been in consulting or banking, um, I don't know if it adds that much. I think if you've been um, not in those areas, it can add a ton of value because you then are forced to definitely learn the quantitative side of things and the presenting side of things and kind of how it all fits together to a company strategy side of things while also getting to know the, the other areas. For me personally, I think that it was very helpful to have the almost like the stamp of approval. It sounds kind of lame, but I think that um, when investors are trusting me with a lot of money, um, they are a little bit risk averse. And so having um, the confidence that this person has learned generally about business and studied it for a couple of years and done it at a prestigious institution, I think gives them a lot of confidence. Um, so I think it can be helpful in fundraising. I think in uh, a career, as you move up, I think it can be helpful in giving confidence to folks that you've studied broadly about business and kind of can have a more general management job because you've had to touch on a lot of the different areas of business in your training. So I am in favor of it. Um, I For people, I think, who are um, expecting to do a lot of kind of general management in their careers um, and or maybe out there raising funding. And the uh, I will say that I think the network I developed at, at HBS was and is great. Um, it's folks I've been able to rely upon for answering kind of questions about things I'm up to in business, um, for introducing me to people and um, for recruiting folks. And so that's been a really useful thing. So I think it kind of depends where you are in your career, what you want to do, um, whether it's worth it. But I am generally in favor of it for certain situations. Awesome. Yeah. Harvard, Princeton, not too bad. Um, I think if I had those degrees, I'd probably, it'd be like the first thing I'd tell. I'd be that guy that's like, hello, I'm Billy. And I went to Harvard and Princeton, which I did not. So, uh, so super, super impressive. <laughs> so Phil, uh, thanks so much. Uh, we, we've really enjoyed your time on the podcast. We, we love to not, you know, we could jam on on kind of business strategy marketing strategy forever but we also like to just have a, a little bit of fun and uh um, just get inside your head a little bit before we part ways i'm just curious you know um we're most of our listeners are in the, the marketing space and we're kind of constantly watching the loyalty marketing space. Is are there brands that that you have your eye on that are doing something that you're like wow you, you mentioned ikea before but what other brands get you uh, uh, super passionate that might be completely separate from what you guys do at, at Live Auctioneers? Any, anything that's caught your eye or industry trend that, uh, uh, that's kind of getting you excited? Yeah, it's funny that uh, nothing's popping into my mind right away. I mean, what, what comes to mind is I like brands that take risks. And I am enamored of companies that are trying big swings and new things. And um, particularly ones that don't hold things sacred. And this might come across as a little sacrilegious. But when Etsy said, you know what, it's okay if some of our sellers have some mass-produced items, and they kind of went to market with that, and that actually became, I think, a better value proposition for the buying side of their marketplace. Um, so they didn't hold themselves sacred to like, because we just started with creators, we have to always and only stick with creators. I think that's kind of like a big risk. I'll be intrigued to see how Netflix does with the ad-supported model. It seems like a big risk to move away from... Uh, always charging subscriptions. Um, but it seems like a kind of interesting shift. I'm enamored with Amazon always making these big bets and trying wild things, whether it's in healthcare now or um, what they've done with Amazon Web Services and the fact that they just will take some big risk and try it. And I'm super annoyed that they're shutting down their digital camera business that I use all around my house. Uh, but um, <laughs> I will move on and progress. But I think it's cool that they take risks and try some things to see what could be big. 
Yeah, it's cool to see businesses like Amazon and Etsy build this really amazing foundation and then use, uh, you know, they're not typically straying too far from it, but using that foundation that they've built, like the prime business to kind of revolutionize um, healthcare as a, as a, a massive example. As you're talking about your business, Live Action Years, I, I think there's probably a lot of opportunities to continue to expand, especially as I feel like we're changing a little bit in, in terms of consumer behavior from like just buying a bunch of stuff, going to uh, kind of the, the cheaply made place and buying a bunch of stuff and and certainly have read a, a lot and, and observed a lot that users are changing their behavior a little bit. And it's more about buying something that's unique or uh, high, high quality. And so I think it's uh, put you all in an incredible position and I'm excited to lose three, four to 12 hours just looking for what that next thing that I need to buy. I apologize to my wife ahead of time for this, like the, the odd knickknacks that might come rolling through my house uh, in the future. With that, Phil, uh, as we close out, what are you listening to, reading, watching right now? Uh, like just one, one thing that's got business or non-business, what's got you pumped up? I'm not sure it's pumping me up, but uh, I'm amused uh, at the show Severance on Apple TV. Uh, it's just such a fascinating construct for a show. It started off really slow. It seems to be picking up a little bit, but it's kind of wild to think about having completely separate lives. So that show is is kind of giving me something to noodle on. Yeah, that's a good one. And then just to come back on trends, I think one trend I'm watching a lot is uh, basically live streaming shopping. And so people are streaming video as they're browsing stores. And then in the comments, people can be like, all right, I want to buy that thing you're, you're holding. And I think that trend is really fascinating. And it, it is something that I think is an opportunity for us. About 20% of our options have an auctioneer streaming live video during the live event. Um, but right now, it's kind of one way to the online audience um, besides the bids coming back in, but there's no real-time kind of chat. Yeah, my neighbor companies that don't hold things sacred that think like, hey, I can just totally innovate this experience. And maybe it should be a two-way talking experience. And maybe that's kind of a future iteration of live auctioneers. So we have those neat opportunities ahead of us to ride these really interesting trends. That's a very cool example. Likewise, like I spent some time in China and that was one of the first things I noticed was how often they're streaming shopping experiences. So I can't wait for that trend to start hitting the US. I've been surprised at how delayed it has been showing up here. Phil, thank you so much. I hope that all of our listeners go to uh, check out Live Auctioneers. I look forward to hearing the stories of what people have landed, and uh, I look forward to sharing my stories. But we really appreciate uh, your time, incredible insights on a super unique industry, and uh, we're, we're grateful that uh, you came in and spent some time on Room for Growth. So thanks so much, and uh, cheers. Thanks for having me. 